From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 652, Teaching and Learning with guest Don Jones, recorded Thursday, August 15th, 2019. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my favorites today, Don Jones has been in the IT industry since the mid-1990s, and in that time, he has written dozens of tech books, spoken at hundreds of conferences, and taught thousands of students. He co-founded PowerShell.org and was awarded Microsoft's MVP award for 16 years running. And Don is currently branching out into business, motivational, and fiction writing. And you can find it all at donjones.com. Welcome back, sir. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. And I got to read a, I got to read a comment off of the show we did uh, last year, the Be the Master show where we talked about your book and, oh, yeah. and I think really dove hard into the skills side of, you know, leading your career and uh, and and making and making the career larger. This particular comment comes from uh, Nick Pilkington who said, "I have to say I truly appreciate the forethought that Richard puts into his show, the show's narrative, which is very kind of him." Uh, this episode particularly resonated with me because, well, PowerShell. But even more so because the story Don tells is very much on par with my own experience in tech. I embraced PowerShell largely because of how well the month of lunches books were written to quickly bring me up to speed and enable me to immediately be successful. Don, your trap worked. <laughs> I thought my days of wanting to be a developer were long gone and I gave up on C++ at age 12. But after learning PowerShell, I'm back in it again, this time with much more confidence and ability. And you'll be happy to know that I've been mentoring anyone who is willing to learn what knowledge I've picked up along the way. I even have an intro to programming using PowerShell class that I teach periodically within my organization. I know that there are fathoms that I don't know, but being willing to teach others, even though I don't feel like a master at all, has strengthened my confidence and reinforced what I have learned. And although I may not be one now, perhaps one day, if I continue to put in the effort, you will continue to make great shows with Richard and wonderful books, and then I will be a master. Keep up the outstanding works. You are making a difference. Wow, what a wonderful comment. I thought it was amazing. And it's a year old, so surprise, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to send you a run-as mug. And uh, yeah, you know, it's great when you know your books get read, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, there's a funny thing there that he said. Um, it was, you know, I'm, I'm teaching people. I, I might not feel worthy. I might not be a master yet. But um, one of the things in, in Be the Master, there's there's a, I think there's like seven traits of a master. Mm-hmm. And a master is not an expert. That's not one of the traits. A master is simply someone who teaches. Right. If you are teaching, therefore, by definition, you are serving the role of, of master to someone else's apprentice. Um, and you, you don't ever have to be an expert. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the lady who taught me how to balance a checkbook in my elementary school math class was not a, you know, Nobel winning theoretical math, mathematician. Um, but she did a great job by me and she taught me something I needed to know. What's a and, checkbook? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You probably have to draw a picture of that for yeah, people. Yeah. Yeah. I know. 
Right. But, uh, but yeah, you don't have to be an expert. That's the whole point of it is you, you've got something to share and you share it with someone and boom, that's it. You did it. Uh, someone tweeted back to me one of my own quotes, which is that I feel like I learn enough just to know I don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so, I mean, what is it when you're really young, you don't know how much you don't know. Right. And when you get older, you do know how much you don't know. And then what I find is as you get a little bit older, you know that you will never know how much you don't know. Yeah, and it and it's okay. Yeah, it's fine. You teach what you do know, and you help where you can help, and that's as good as it's going to get. It doesn't get any better than that. That's what keeps life interesting, too, right? I, I would hate to work in the lumber industry, because there's nev- never anything new happening there. Uh, I'm sure I could probably find someone in lumber who could tell you about new weird things they do. New, right? new tree species. <laughs> A lot of that, you know, synthesized lumber. I, I, I've done a couple of buildings of houses where, in, you know, where you once would have put a steel I-beam, now you do this stressed wooden thing that is yeah, a, a yeah, laminated yeah, beam. They are inventing kinds of wood. So. Engineering. It's yeah. awesome stuff. I love good, good engineering. How has, you know, when we did that show last year, the, the Be the Master show, the book was brand new. You were literally, I think we timed that so we dropped the show right around when it was publishing. Yeah, yeah. And have you done an update? Has it gone well? Um, so it's on the third edition. Wow. Um, I'm really happy with the third edition. Uh, I, I I feel like the story and everything is is really, really tight. Um, it's got a lot at the end of the book that is kind of designed to, to keep you going, you know, once you get into it. Um, we stood up the, the BeTheMaster.com website. Uh, I've been doing some seminars, some some online seminars with people, uh, with Mike Pfeiffer and his CloudSkills.io uh, company. And it's, it's been going really, really well. Uh, I did a live seminar right before the last PowerShell summit. So we did like a, a pre-con staged type thing. And it, it's, I, you know, everyone I've talked to, most people are like, I've, I've just never thought about steering the ship in that way. Right. And, you know, now that I think about actually sliding into the driver's seat, I think I'm doing really well. I just... I didn't realize how well I was doing and how that I'd actually gotten here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had, I had one guy write it and said, you know, you know how it is. And, and I was like this. He says, I, I got my first job in IT. Um, I, I, you know, quickly learned a whole bunch of stuff at the company and it qualified me for the next job. And he says, I've been moving about every 18 months, every two years or so. And, and you know, I'm getting to the point where it's, it's, it's a lot like I'm in these high stress jobs that have a lot of on-call requirements and everything else. And, he says, it's just starting to kill me that I have to keep up with so many things to get ahead. But then I stopped and I read your book and I, I wrote down with my family what we considered success to be. And I realized I had had it two jobs ago. Right. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? I, he said he went back. He says, I'm much happier. I don't need to make as much money. I don't need to keep moving. And w- now that I know where I'm actually going, I realized I had already been there. Like, you know, that's fantastic. Well, and to have the, the strength of character to say, oh, I walked past the thing that actually mattered to me, and I'm going to go walk back. I think, yeah. I think a lot of people really struggle with the idea yeah. of actually stepping back from something they've previously achieved. Like, that was a finish line he thought he valued at one point or another, and the fact that he changed and was willing to say, nope, that's the wrong place for me. I'm going to go. Well, we're, we're you know, we're kind of taught to value the, the rat race for the race itself. Yeah, yeah, true enough. And and we, we never really think about, is there a finish line to this thing? And if so, what does that look like to me? And then, like, once you realize what that is, it turns out to be so in reach for so many people because 
especially in the IT industry. I mean, you've got a lot of really smart, high functioning people who don't mind working hard. Right. And it, I mean, that's kind of all the ingredients you really need. Well, and commonly really like what they do. You know, we, we, yeah. we have this good fortune to have huge opportunities in a field that we genuinely enjoy. You know, this, yeah. I, I think the tech industry is much more common to have this live to work mindset versus this work to live mindset where this is the thing that's necessary to do so they can go off and have my pleasures. There's a lot of pleasure in our work. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. So it's, it, uh, yeah. Anyway, the, the, the book has been going really well. Um, having the website up, uh, you know, there's an article that goes up once a week just to kind of keep people engaged mm -hmm. and thinking along the right lines and everything else. Uh, it's been going really fantastic. The feedback's been great. And, and I appreciate your story because it was about someone who decides like they, they really want to intentionally lead their career that they, they're picking a direction to go in. And, and it correlates. I was my question to you when you said I'm going really well is like, what is the metric to you that is well? So for me, uh, there's two. There's there's kind of just a raw. How many people am I, I reaching on a mm -hmm. continual basis? Right. Because if, if the numbers go down, then clearly I'm not doing the right thing for the audience. So if the numbers stay even or go up, then it means people are finding some use in it. And so it's worth continuing to do and sharing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I think the the feedback loop, you know, what I hear from people, that's kind of the, the qualitative companion to the quantitative, just the numbers, um, you know, hearing people say, yeah, I. I thought about it this way. Like one of the reasons it's on the third edition of the book is because people have come back and said, yeah, you know, I, I went through it and I read it, but this is what occurred to me. I'm like, oh my God, yes, what a wonderful synthesis that I had never even thought about. Let me build that into the narrative a bit so that other people who think like you do can find something to latch onto. Um, and that feedback loop has, has been really, really strong. And, and for me, that means there's, there's, there's people that it matters to. And if it matters, then it's worth doing. Yeah. To be a third edition in a year means there's a lot of energy around that. And I really like this idea that that once you've published something, it's sort of now it's the readers. Yeah. And that they're the ones influencing you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the it's the beauty of the Lean Pub platform that I can I can update the book and I can create a new edition and everyone who already bought it just gets that new thing. Right. It's there automatically. And yeah, I can create another paperback version for Amazon or whatever else, but it's, it's really about just like a continual feedback loop. Interesting. Yeah. And then of course the electronic book is you're, you're really playing into this new model that the, it needs, it can be revised and it probably should be revised. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a living thing. I think it's one of the reasons that lean pub has, has really landed so well with technology writers because i mean we live in a world where as soon as you put words to print they're wrong yeah of course especially in tech i mean yeah that, that was always the madness around these books was that yeah well, they had a shelf life of a year and it's accelerated so much in some spaces now it's it's not even that much but if you can create a living book i mean you know i i look at books on there where the author's charging 60 bucks and, right. and that's a lot for a book but if that's the last book you have to pay for on that topic, and it's just an investment for the author to keep updating it, then it's not a terrible business model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I've been doing fiction, my fiction writing on Lean Pub as well. And, you know, you write in Markdown, everything comes out of GitHub. It, the, the revision process and everything else is just so natural feeling. And it means I can write and people are getting the book almost as if it was a serial. It's being published a chapter at a time and I get feedback right away and I can go, Oh, you're right. I was completely inconsistent. 10 chapters ago, I said this happened 
and you guys caught me on it. So now I'm going to fix that narrative. And by the time it's all done, it's actually going to be, so it's the same thing that, that fictional authors already do, right? You have your beta readers who help you do that, but it's, right. it's happening as you write it. Like it's in real time. Yeah. And, it, and allowing those that are passionate about it to simply be involved, right? You don't have to be in a special club. Yeah. And that, I, I honestly think that's it. Like, I'm not going to get rich writing fiction books at all. Sure. Uh, and that's, that's totally fine, but I enjoy doing it so much. And the folks who are reading it enjoy reading it. And so why can't we just all enjoy it together? Yeah, and, no, that's really cool. You know, I, I, the one book I wrote, Alabaster has a, a strong kind of a, a, a musical background to it. Like there, there's a, 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 a main thesis of the book where music plays in heavily. And one of my readers, uh, Jim Top, who's, the best reader any human being could ever hope for. Um, he not only knows grammar better than anyone and is perfectly willing to send me edits, but he's also a musician. And so he was able to like help me change some of the words so that it, it like made a much more compelling musical story. Like I didn't have the words to tell what was in my head, but he did. And so he kind of, you know, got me through some of that and it turned out to be a much better story. And even if we're the only two who ever enjoyed it, it was worth it for that. That's not interesting. Yeah, no, I love everything about that. And of course, I'm mired in the challenge of putting together the history of .NET, yeah, which, you know, in, yeah. the, in the end, you know what happened, but how you tell right. it is everything. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, and that agile publishing is, is such a great way to do it. I mean, I've even had copy editors who I would give access to the repo and they would open issues, whereas in a Word document, they may have put a comment. Right. Um, and they're like, well, you know, how do you want me to mark up the copy edits? I'm like, that's the beauty of it. Don't yeah, F fix it. Um, submit the PR. I'll grab it. I'll do a merge and I'll compare the two. And if I see something I don't like, I'll just reject that bit. And they're like, oh, this is, this is a miracle. How have we not always done this? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I, I hate words. So, <laughs> but isn't it interesting that these dev technologies, the source code management system has just been a more fluid way to explore a topic. I don't think we had that until we had Git. Um, not GitHub. I mean, obviously, GitHub is a convenient online version of Git. Yeah. But if, if you look back at at CVS and SourceSafe and the whole the whole check in check out, like that that single threaded workflow that that yeah. kind of enforced, I don't think any of us would have thought to to do these types of things with those. But Git's whole, you know, no master, no checkout kind of distributed repository situation is so much more collaborative. Yeah, I think the distributed repository mindset was in, was important, but what GitHub brought to it was almost that social uh media, you know, dialogue that there was a place yeah. to talk about it, that it was part yeah, of a the, conversation. The, the services that they wrapped around the basic repo, you know, the issues, the conversations, the wikis, like all the things that they added to, to get itself are just tremendous. I mean, just for a collaboration environment, I, it, it's one of those things where you look back and you're like, how in the world did we function before, before we had all this? <laughs> it's absolutely true. And, and, and it's interesting just in it in general, I mean, this is an ongoing thread on run as, and I think PowerShell was part of the driver of this was, you know, you've hit an interesting point as an ops guy when you want source control. Yeah. Right. It's just like, yeah. And when you have, when you have to have that source control. Yeah. Yeah. That it's just like the once upon a time you kept your scripts on a USB key and you were the only one to use them. And now you've actually got them checked into a place. So not only multiple people can use them, but that multiple people support them. 
Like, that's a very different world. And it's, I don't say it happened overnight, but it's like it happened very slowly and then all at once. It took, it took about 10 years. Like we, you know, when we were doing VB script, that took about 10 years to really hit a zeitgeist moment for admins. Um, and, you know, 2003, 2004, when I was writing books about VB script with Jeff Hicks, that was the height of it. And we were just to the point where we could convince people to check this stuff into source safe. And then PowerShell came out and it was almost starting over a little bit. And then by the time it was, you know, people were far enough along in their professionalism to start worrying about source control. We finally had something that was far better, you know, yeah. and get and GitHub and everything else. And, and that, that's why I think it was sudden people were like, Oh, you know, Oh God, source control. Oh, it's going to be like, source. Oh, wait a minute. This is not that bad. This no. is actually pretty easy. And it just boom took off one day. Well, and also like, and a preferred way to do things. Like now I'd rather yeah. do this, yeah. do this collaborative work throw through this. Not that this is a necessary evil. Yeah. And Don, I got to take a short pause for this very important message. This episode of Run As is brought to you by SQL Intersection. Eight full-day workshops and over 40 technology-focused sessions make SQL Intersection a unique source of the best information for SQL Server from real-world consultants and members of the SQL Server team. You'll learn proven problem-solving techniques and technologies you can implement immediately, as well as learn about the future of SQL Server. Get answers to performance monitoring, troubleshooting, designing for scale and performance cloud, as well as the new features in the latest version of SQL Server 2019. It's time to determine your migration strategy, and SQL Intersection is the place to figure out the best way to do it. Come to SQL Intersection at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, November 18th to 21. Use code RUNAS to get a discount on your registration at SQLintersection.com. See you there. And we're back. It's RUNAS Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Don Jones. And uh, I guess we're talking about still being the master, but also just talking about how we learn and how we communicate and how we collaborate. Uh, in this this funny world of IT today, yeah, it has changed a whole lot, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. I've uh, I've always been a programmer. Um, I don't think I've ever had a job where I wasn't doing coding. Even when I was in charge of the infrastructure, there was just a ton of VB scripts and kickstarts being written. Mm-hmm. And I know that in the you know kind of the two thousands which is when, you know, the, the late 90s, 2000s, when the Microsoft IT ops space really became a force in the, the, the world. And you were getting a lot of people who didn't have an IT background in a lot of cases and who maybe didn't have a programming course when they were in high school or college. And so programming kind of kind of became, uh, you know, a, a separate thing that some people did, but most didn't. And it feels like we're back to the point where almost everybody in operations knows they should be programming if they're not already doing it. Well, I also wonder how much Microsoft's dominance in that space and being so GUI centric. Yeah. I remember building word docs where I'm literally just taking a screenshot and dropping in the doc screenshot, dropping the doc each click of the way through a workflow. Yeah. To, to try and pass along to someone. This is the process. I, I think that's something that held Microsoft back for a long time. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's the thing that got them out of the departmental file server world it got them into the oh i don't want to call it the enterprise but big companies maybe yeah um because it was it was easy to they were easy systems to keep up but it hit a wall the minute you had a hundred file servers yeah and it started to pile up and then that's where you know that's where they kind of pitched db script originally and, and that always kind of failed you on the last mile and that was jeffrey snover's whole kind of 
impetus for building PowerShell to begin with. Yeah, that we need a better way. And I mean, you sort of see the VBScript roots in PowerShell too. Oh yeah. And I, I don't mean, and I don't mean to taint it in any way, but it's just like, look, that sort of friendly language, friendly approach, dot notation, piping. They're all, it's all very familiar. It's just not that much of a stretch from what you used to do. Well, and that was a design goal for them, right? When, when they were creating it, they knew that they had to appeal to an existing audience because otherwise no one was going to sure. use the thing. Um, and they followed the very, you know, C flavored type of syntax that looked enough like BB script and enough like C sharp that you could kind of appeal to both sides. And they let you get away with some things that were maybe less ideal, but more recognizable. Um, they, they really walked a fine line. Like it's a lot of people will beat up on things now that, that PowerShell lets you get away with, but Mm -hmm. you got to remember that in, in the original days, that's the only reason that it got off the ground. Yeah. Well, you know, I think about how Microsoft got into web development with web forms as the same thing. That was a terror. That was a necessary compromise for inexperienced people to sort of make that slope easy to climb. You have to be experienced enough. And one would argue it's almost a measure of success when you look back at that tool and go, ew. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's only it's only that we have a cadre of sophisticated PowerShell users today that we recognize the compromises that PowerShell has. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. We, it, 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 this happens over and over again. I think it's an interesting point about mastery in general and, and trying to get better is that you you and you benefit from that gradual slope that it's easy to get into this and you learn piece by piece. And then you get over a certain hump where the slope you kind is now vaguely repugnant. And then perhaps you get to a place where you recognize without that slope, I never would have gotten here. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I think where you see a lot of people fail or struggle as teachers is they forget how they learned. Like we, we forget that that learning is really just a, a, a process of sharing failures with each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. You know, don't touch that. It's going to burn you. Don't do that. It's going to hurt, you know, wear glasses. You're going to put your eye out, that type of thing. And especially in the IT world, because we all kind of have this engineering mindset where we're, we're aiming for the, the most concise way to solve the problem. We, we try to eliminate that sometimes. Like we'll sit down with someone and say, okay, here's, here's the world as it sits today. And I'm just going to walk you through it. Well, like, yeah, but the world sits as it is today because it went through all this hell over the past 10 years. And you, you don't need to give a history lesson, but you do need to kind of share some of those failures in order for today's world to make sense. Right. And they're like, yeah, but that's a really inefficient way to teach. I'm like, yeah, but brains are an inefficient way to learn. And I, I also think that learning's not that linear thing either, that you can it's not. Treat, teach a piece of dogma and then move back and fill in details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so long as you do, otherwise it loses its context. Sure. And if, if people aren't aware of the mistakes, then they're definitely going to make them again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to, you know, as, as you're teaching people, you kind of have to be aware of, of the context. You know, you, you it's like, you know, my famous thing about right host, I'm going to just come out with a piece of dogma. You know, uh, every time you use right host, God kills a puppy, <laughs> which is fun. It's the, probably one of the most famous PowerShell phrases out there now, but in a classroom setting or when I'm talking to someone, I always immediately backfill that with, and here's why, right? Let's understand because now that's an opportunity to look at how this thing works, what it really does. And you know what, at the end of the day, 
there's times when it's appropriate to use right host. But now you've got that strong statement in your mind, and that's going to pin all this context that I've just given you, and you're going to make good decisions going forward. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I Certainly for certain, you know, giving weight to dogma, I'm thinking in terms of I would never try and teach network architecture to someone who hadn't spent time in networking first. Yeah. Like you, you have to have done the work before you respect the challenge around architecture. Yeah, it's you've got to experience the pain, right? You 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 can't just take someone's word for the fact that the pot is hot. You right. are going to have to touch it. Yeah. And you've got to, you've had to have cooked a few meals and recognize no matter how careful you are once in a while you get burned. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's th those sorts of bits of experience that at least give you respect for now, how do we design the kitchen? Right. That, that now we're getting into this broader thinking of what do we do to minimize the number of burns? Like what are the techniques? Yep. That's exactly uh, it. Jesus. Yeah. And I'm laughing about this one, especially because like in a professional kitchen, when you've put a pan in an oven, you always leave a cloth wrapped around the handle of the pan. It is the sort of universal symbol for this pan handle is hot. This is hot. Right? Yep. And that seem you can't tell someone off the bat. Like, you can order the dogma, but they won't respect it until they've burnt their hand a few times. Our brains are not designed to learn through a, a single form of sensory input. You can't just tell me something or let me read something. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when your brain creates memories, the, the neurons that connect to each other by synapses have stronger connections and there are more of them. So, you know, a portion of your brain is responsible for sight, a portion is responsible for touch, a portion is responsible for smell. The more of those sections you can light up, the stronger that memory is sure. going to be. And, and that's experiential, right? Burning your hand is a strong experience. It lights up a lot of your brain. Yeah. If you just tell someone something, that's why, I mean, that's why hands-on is so important, but we, we corrupt hands-on because adults are also afraid of looking like failures. They're, they're afraid to make mistakes in right. front of their peers. And so we do these, you know, classroom exercises where it's, okay, here's 82 things to do in order. That's not hands-on. I, I had absolutely no room to fail there. And right. so I'm not really going to learn. But if you put me into a situation and let me struggle for a little bit and point me to resources that where I can fix this myself. That's, there's actually an instructional design um, a philosophy called constructionism mm -hmm. that, that is that. I don't teach you a thing. I show you where the resources are. I give you a goal and I just keep pointing you back to those resources. It takes you longer, but you will learn it. Well, and, and as a good teacher, I allow you to struggle to a certain level to maybe an edge yeah. of frustration before giving you additional information or helping you to get over the next hurdle and then yep. back in it again, struggling. I mean, some people yeah, get the, quite the, frustrated the, with that too. It's like, they just tell me everything I need to know. Yeah, I can't. I, I never will. And because I can't come with you to your job and do it for you, you're going to have to learn this. And I, I think, I think sometimes as, as teachers, we forget that it's really our job to facilitate and experience where we safely duplicate as much failure as possible mm -hmm. and that not everyone's going to make it. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think because you want everyone to make it. I mean, for me you as do. a teacher too, I think part of my metric is that my students succeed. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's not always going to be a hundred percent. Like mm. not, not everyone is going to have all the right aptitudes. Uh, you know, I, I was an aircraft mechanic um, for the department of Navy and one of the things that I, I had to do before I wound up getting that job was an aptitude test. And 
I had to show that I had strong mechanical aptitude and that, you know, the military is very good at this. They have a whole battery of tests that they give you. And there's plenty of people like, oh, I want to be a, a an aircraft mechanic. Well, cool. Okay. Um, you know, here's a picture of four gears that are interlocked and this first gear is spinning this direction. Which direction is the third gear spinning? And they're like, well, I don't know. Then you cannot do this. Like if your brain doesn't do that, let's right. go find something your brain does. Yeah. And, and that's born from tons and tons of experience too, that, that these are, oh, yeah. these need to be reflexive skills for you to be successful in this area. I, I also yeah. think a lot about, and maybe it's just cause I'm getting old that the, the empathy around make, make sure people feel good about what they can and can't do that, you know, the differences are valued, uh, that struggle is normal, uh, and that, and that, and banishing the word easy from your vernacular. I think I think our industry is poisoned by easy. Oh gosh, yes, yeah. Because we we use it to try and reassure people. Yeah. Oh no, this is easy. But I, what you don't realize is that you've then just set up this thing in this person's head, like an idiot could do this, and if you can't do it, you're worse than an idiot. Mm-hmm. Like, and well, and I also feel like you've devalued the effort you put in the first place to learn this. Well, if it's easy. Why are you teaching it? Sure. Yeah, it's easy once you know it. Yeah. Yeah, and even then, it's actually not that easy. <laughs> like, there's so many subtleties to so much technology. Oh, and and a lot of times we we forget how we learn, and so we we don't reflect on how other people learn, and mm-hmm. so we don't necessarily set up a situation that's like optimal for learning. Um, I I've seen teachers. I I had a guy I used to work with uh, who taught database courses, and he was a really good teacher. But he would go off on these these stories. And what he was trying to do was just create some space in the class where people could could just reflect on what had been said and, and absorb it a little bit before he moved on to the next thing. But it, it wound up creating this like distraction where people are like, wait, should I be listening to this? Is this should I be paying is attention? This, or is this, this on a important? test? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so I went and taught the class. He's like, you got through that in half the time. I'm like, yeah, I you know, you got the stories are used to convey the point, but then you need to shut up. Well, and, and isn't it interesting? I, I think a lot of people struggle with this. Just being quiet is hard when you're in the front of the room and people are looking yeah. at you. Yeah. Like giving people time to digest silently, that's not yeah. an easy thing to do. Well, and, and understanding that in an eight hour class, you're only going to get two hours of learning and it's going to be spread out. And it's just the way our squishy organic brains work and yeah. there is no fixing it. Some people a little faster, some people a little slower, that's normal. But within the range of human normality that you're stuck there, like that's all you have to work with and, you know, go for a little bit and then let people play with it. Um, yeah. And give them room to absorb. I mean, I, I just feel like eight hours is too long. Give them room and make sure they know they have that room. I think I, I think I want to go maybe six knowing that, to represent the meat and sort of like an hour of this is super yeah. valuable in the morning and an hour of this is super valuable in the afternoon. And the rest is the time it takes for that to be absorbed and to, to set context. Yeah. Yeah. Our brains are super, super inefficient at the type of thing we ask them to learn these days. Like they're designed to figure out which berries are going to kill us and what animals are going to kill us. And like where we've taken our culture and society to is just an amazing testament to the flexibility that we've got. Yeah. But 
learning is still a very meat-based process. Yes, the think meat takes time. Yep, it does. I still, I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you, Don. I think we learn remarkably quickly for what we're asking people to do and and to be successful. We, we do, but there's limits. So um, take the month of lunches book. Um, the people who are the most successful with that read the introduction, which says read no more than one chapter per day. Right. I, I did a ton of research into what the average adult reading speed is. Every chapter is about 40 to 45, 50 minutes of reading. And then you have to sleep on it so that your brain does the whole memory building and association thing that happens during REM sleep. And you come back the next day and you're like, but that chapter ended with this problem that I've now identified. Oh, look, the next chapter is talking about that. Right. Yep. That's the beauty of it. But if you do three in a row, then none of that happens. Like none of the chemical happens. And you can't really speed that up by too much and still get as powerful and as permanent of a learning experience from it. And they, ha and they have to read the introduction and how many people skip the introduction. Oh, I know. I know I kept it really <laughs> super short, but you know, publishers are what they are. Yeah, no. And, and people read the way they're going to read. Like they only yeah. can influence so much too. Yeah. I would have people hit me up on Twitter. Oh, I just read six chapters last night. Oh, uh, no, you're going to want, you're going to do it again. Yeah. Cause it won't, have, it won't stick. Yeah. That's it. The reason it takes a month is that's how the yeah. book is structured. Yeah. So what's next for you, my friend? I've just wrapped up what will probably be my last business focused book for a little while. Uh, it's called let's talk business. It is, it's the stuff that, that your boss wishes you knew mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's why do companies behave the way they do? Well, because these reasons, uh, you know, and here's how to talk like that. And here's what a P and L is and what it means and how to read one. And here's, here's the things that go through your boss's mind when you ask if you can buy something or go to a conference or whatever else. And, Here's why the HR department is the way it is. And here's why the employee manual has all the stuff it does. Uh, it's just designed to make like most of us work in a business. And if you're going to thrive, you kind of need to know the rules of engagement and nobody tells us. Right. And so that's what that book is. And, they're, like and a, they're all different too. I mean, lots of different yeah. ways and, and different approaches, oh, yeah. different companies. Yeah. I mean, businesses are as varied as human beings who run them. And, and just knowing kind of what the ground context is can be hugely, hugely helpful for people. Um, and then um, I'm working on some fiction books, which I'm really, really, really enjoying, as I said. Um, and I love my job at Pluralsight. It, it keeps me so engaged and happy and, and challenged. Um, I, like what we're doing is truly demonstrably changing people's lives in parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned that uh, the tech industry, we're so lucky in that um, most of us love our jobs. Um, and you never work a day in your life when you love your job. Uh, it's something you love to do. And these jobs pay well. Like, you know, in parts of the world, these jobs pay quadruple or more above sure. above baseline. And so to go to a country like Google is doing 100 days of code in Africa right now. And, you know, for these young people who are learning on their own using Pluralsight and the resources that Google's provided, they're learning to code they're going to get jobs writing mobile apps. I know they are. I, I can see their, you know, what they're doing on their Twitter comments and everything else. They're going to get jobs. It's going to change their lives, their families' lives, their communities' lives. Um, it's just like, it, it, you know, until I saw that happening, you never realize how, how powerful tech skills are 
and they're amongst the cheapest skills to acquire. Mm-hmm. Like you can't become a doctor for cheap. No, there's um, no inexpensive way. And it's, and it's not become, just what colleges charge. It's that you need to yeah. practice, that you need to be an intern. Like there's, there's that whole aspect. And you, you can't become a lawyer for cheap. There's so many powerful jobs that just require so much, but tech's, tech's a powerful job that doesn't. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually something that a lot of people can do and learn on their own with a little bit of help. And it's, it's genuinely uplifting. And I think that, I think that over the, you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to find the thing that solves our, our crises and our political strife and everything else is when we can all code. Like once all of us have lifted ourselves up to the point where like we can all do this and we can all create an unlimited universe because once you're in the, the, the cloud resources suddenly aren't so constrained. Like right. you don't have to worry so much. Um, and it's just, it's amazing to kind of be at the beginning of it and, and a company that's, that's just so dedicated to it. Yeah. And, and we're still in the midst of the transformation. Like we don't know where this ends actually. It is just yeah, a ride. It doesn't. It, it, and, and like, I think whatever we envision is just the next generation starting point. Yeah. Fair enough. And I, I think that's, what's, what's so amazing about it is I, like I'm genuinely excited to see what a 20 year old is going to accomplish in the next 10 years. I, I recently had this conversation where I talked about this concept of immigrants and natives, that you and I are immigrants to this technology. We remember a time before we chose to move into this. Yeah. And, yeah. and we are now working with young people that are natives that have never known yeah. another way. And their relationship to technology is fundamentally different. I'm not going to say better or worse. I find most immigrants more passionate about these things than than the natives are. But the- yeah, it's easy. It's easy to take it for for granted, but it's easy for them to make a bigger paradigm shift too. Yes, you know and- when you, you read the stories now about the Navy destroyers where they've got the touchscreen controls and and now they're going to put physical throttles yeah. back into things. We just and, talked about that on Donnet Rocks, and interesting enough, and exactly, and in, and as soon as they, as soon as I read the article, I'm like, of course they are, yeah, yeah I could see why, yeah. and it was specifically in crisis moments, touchscreens yeah. aren't a great solution. Yeah, yeah, and I, what's amazing is to look at that though, and you know, because the, the Navy, the Navy has a lot of traditions for a lot of reasons. It's been around a long time, it's mm-hmm. made a lot of failures, and it's learned from a lot of those, but. If you were to, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder, I'm like, if you took a brand new crew of people who had never before seen a physical throttle ever, and if they were the ones using the touchscreens, I bet you they would probably want to get rid of the touchscreens, but they would not want a physical throttle either. They yeah. would have something entirely different that would make the most sense to them because they're native to that state. Yeah. Yeah. They, and they may not have been able to articulate what it is they need at that point, but it's like they would know this isn't right. 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 Cause they're going to have to make, they're going to have to make their own mistakes around it and then come up with their own solutions for mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so friend, thank you so much for coming back on. I think once a year is barely enough. I suspect Nick would like more often and you do have a run as mug, don't you? I do. Yes. And Nick's got one now or coming anyway. Uh, well, I'm glad because, uh, I, I love them. They're big and, uh, we're going to have to make more, but, uh, they come in lots of different colors. So they, it's, it's hard. They <laughs> 11, them all. It has 11 colors. And I think when I finally have someone who's got all 11, then I'll deal with, uh, making whatever the 12th should be. Special edition with gold leaf. Something like that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Don Jones, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Richard. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio.